1: We're going to connect with a very familiar name on perhaps an unexpected topic. Joining us is Hockey Hall of Famer and Doctor in Training, Haley Wickenheiser. Also alongside her colleague, Dr. Jeff Shaw, they're going to help us understand their new initiative. It's called PandemicSolutions.com. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Jody. Thanks for having us on.
2: Thank you so much,
3: Jody. Nice to be with you.
1: And I'm fascinated by what you're working on here because I don't think I've heard anybody sort of come up with the simplicity and yet the ne- necessity sort of in one location that is uh, this newly launched uh, initiative you've got going on. Wick, let's start with you uh, in terms of sort of the the elevator top talk, talk. What is Pandemic <laughs> Solutions in the easiest of terms? Yeah,
2: so when the uh, pandemic started, actually, a, a few of us, uh, Jeff and a few of us uh, folks in the medical field, we started talking about uh, this being a long game and, and we were very concerned about the economy and how are people going to work and, and make a living and um, doing it safely. And so we kind of came up with this idea around uh, symptom screening, tracking and tracing and cohorting all within one software solution that makes it easy for a business to use, whether you have Ten to twenty employees, or whether you're a bombardier and are working uh, thousands of people in factories, and so uh, we've been able to to launch this uh, with with two visions. You know, obviously as a business, but also sort of a social good in mind of trying to help people open safely and what was um, kind of an open, eye-opener for me was being a, in Canmore a number of weeks ago and going into a restaurant and seeing that uh, you know, folks were taking down your name on, with a pen and paper uh, just in case they had to track you, um, you know, with, uh, with a positive COVID test. And, and so this solution just essentially attempts to make that really easy for businesses to not have to, to do all that legwork and, um, uh, and be able to, to open and stay open safely.
1: And doctor, when it when it comes to uh, the sort of the symptoms, the screening, the tracking and tracing with COVID nineteen, the urgency and need for uh, contact tracing is massive, is it not?
3: It is. We're seeing that uh, it's very hard for governments to keep up with contact tracing, and I think that um, having businesses take on some of the role of that not only provides businesses confidence in providing. Safety for their visitors and employees, but also actually does serve that public good of of contributing to um, contact tracing. And what we're trying to get people to do is to to get everyone who comes into the business, uh, visitors or the employees, to do a symptom screen. And what we can provide is a way in which you can search through when um, you know someone who was there two days ago calls you up and says, you know what, I, I've been tested positive. I probably had it at that time where you can instantly find out the people that they would have been in contact with and then provide information to those people on what the next steps would be and also provide information to public health office on, on who those people might be. So that's one component of what we do is to try to help businesses contact trace to give more confidence to their employees and customers, but also to help prevent wider outbreaks from occurring and to, really quickly get a hold of things because we've seen this, the, the longer the contact tracing takes, the further an outbreak gets, and that if you can get on top of things really quickly in terms of contact tracing, that you can snuff out outbreaks pretty quickly. But the longer the delay there is, the harder it becomes.
1: Now, both of you are basically frontline workers. Uh, Haley, the last time we spoke, you had just finished a 26-hour shift at the hospital, uh, you know, um, soon to be a full-blown physician, but you're already walking the walk. And doc- Dr. Shaw, uh, in your role as a cardiologist and internal medicine physician, you have a subspecialty in intensive care medicine. From With your experience We're having issues here in in B.C. with people just sort of not getting the message about the importance of taking these simple public health um, directives, the simplicity of washing hands and physical distancing. Can you can you dive in a little bit as to as to the the importance of the bubble and maybe explain what cohorting is as well? Because people are just kind of they're at that point where. I mean we had an issue over the weekend you may have heard it in in the news prior to uh you coming on where people are still you know hopping on party buses and thinking they can they can head out and then uh, at the other end of the spectrum there are people so incredibly anxious something like pandemic solutions could it could it educate broadly for people in the workplace cuz you might be sitting next to someone who thinks I'm over it where you're feeling <laughs> very stressed and and sort of tense of very much being in it, and maybe living in a bubble with someone who's at risk.
2: Yeah. yeah well, maybe
1: I'll, uh, I do
2: the yeah. first part, and, and uh, I'll let Jeff speak to the, to the the cohorting part. But I think just you know, basically, Jody, um, you know, I was in B- I, I kind of live part time BC a little bit as well, and uh, the the difference coming, uh, you know, from what I saw in in Calgary to uh, what I saw in in BC is is, is pretty. It it was almost like COVID didn't exist there in terms of the precautions that I thought people were taking. So uh, the only thing I could say of my, my limited experience, and Jeff has far more than I do in the hospital, is that this is real... Um, I was recently just taking care of a patient who was recovering um, from COVID and she was a 40-year-old otherwise healthy person. And I know Jeff has seen countless uh, things. So uh, I think we still have to stay vigilant, although I know people are, are very tired. And so I think what this software does is it, it helps to, to take away some of that busy work and that, you know, doing doing the things that we're all exhausted doing every day. And one, one less thing to worry about.
3: Yeah, uh, the notion of cohorting is, um, it really helps a, a business establish people who need to work together. Because let's face it, Jody, there are people who in, in organizations just have to be side by side, whether that's on a factory or, or certain services. It's impossible to separate everyone out by six feet. Now, you can do other things like wear a mask to reduce the risk, even if you're in close contact. But some people just have to work together. And so what we've come up with is a solution where people can Form working groups within a larger organization that can distance from each other so that you can say, Oh, you know, we, we have these six people who just need to work together. Let's put them in a group, but maintain physical distancing between their group and others. And what we've done is we've demonstrated, and I'm working on a research project with some, some folks across the country, that that would significantly reduce the outbreak a chance at a, in an organization, if you just do that simple thing, and even breaking your organization down into two groups helps in a big way, but the further you can break it down and distance out those smaller clusters of people or what we call cohorts, then you can really reduce the risk of something spreading across an organization. And the other thing that people are, are, are forgetting is that businesses face another challenge, which is the challenge of having an insurable uninsurable loss right there's you mm-hmm. know a number of examples we've seen from just small gyms or restaurants or larger factories where you know because someone has has come to work with COVID, they've had to close for up to two weeks and uh, part of the problem there is that when someone's in the business with and, and you later find out they have COVID, it's it's hard to know who they may have had contact with it's hard to know what areas they were in or what may have been contaminated so when you don't know, the safest thing to do is to close. But if you if you come up with a solution where you plan things in advance and you know all those variables and you you know the, the people that that person is working with and who they're socially distanced from, then you can um, you can just shut down a smaller part of your business and, and still operate even if someone has had it. So I, we think that it's a, a way for businesses to protect their employees' health, but also a way to protect a business. So hard for a business to operate in these times, with uh, with this kind of um, pandemic looming over them, not knowing how it's going to affect them at any time.
1: Continuing our chat with four time Olympic gold medalist uh, in training to be a doctor and most recently a Conquer COVID nineteen volunteer. You know her, you love her. She's a Hockey Hall of Famer, Haley Wickenheiser, is on the line with us alongside uh, a colleague working on this really interesting initiative, PandemicSolutions.com, newly launched. Dr. Jeff Shaw is a cardiologist and internal medicine physician with a subspecialty in intensive care medicine. And guys, I just want to dig a little bit deeper into uh, how people can access this. And you mentioned whether you're big like Bombardier or you're a small business, just looking to find that way of helping your employees and customers through this very anxious time, Uh, maybe you can give us an idea of how these tools work or how people can access it.
2: Uh, sure, sure. I can I can take that one. So I, it's very simple. Just if you're interested, have a look at our website, pandemicsolutions.com. There's a there's a number that uh, you can call and we can uh, speak to you directly. Um, part of our service is that, uh, you know, you get to speak to uh, people like Jeff, people like my, myself along the way who uh, will can, we can actually tailor make uh, this software um, to the business, depending whether they're small or large and walk you through, uh, see what your needs are and how we might be able to service you. So uh, PandemicSolutions.com is really the best way. And um, as far as um, what we can offer, there's a variety of levels and uh, you know technical solutions, depending on how complex the business is.
1: And what about yeah. the back end of it when people are concerned about the, the privacy piece? Dr. Shaw, can you speak to that?
3: Yeah, absolutely, Jody. So uh, our system was designed by a a, a software team that regularly works in storing patient information, and they're an award-winning team that uh, has won an award on privacy before. So there is a a confidence that people can have there that, you know, we're not trying to to collect people's health information, but as much as you are going to collect a a questionnaire on people's symptom status and whether they're currently dealing with COVID, um, it can be stored safely. The other thing we're doing is trying to protect people's privacy as much as possible by having a rolling deletion of their information so that, you know, for contact tracing purposes, you really only need to store things, we think, for a month or two in order to be able to make sure that you've you've undergone a period where people might then report that they've had COVID and then you make that Need to kind of back contact trace, but that that period doesn't exist forever, and so we can delete people's information on a rolling basis. Certainly not our intention to uh, to collect people's information for any other purpose, and we're explicit in our in our um, uh, documents that that is not the intent of this business is to to use information for other things. This is specifically to try and deal with the pandemic, specifically to to try and make sure employee are safe, that um, organizations are safe, and that we can participate in contact tracing in a temporary way, but not in a permanent way to, to store people's data.
1: I like your quote in the press release that I dug up here that you said, Jeff, uh, you said it's more than a nice to do. These processes are going to uh, protect protect not just employees and the public from a socially responsible standpoint, but these measures also help keep the businesses operational for the long term. And Haley, obviously with Conquer COVID-19, you were all about stocking up the the personal protective equipment, the the PPE was at the forefront. But looking long term with COVID-19, we need more than just a full stocked PPE covered?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, for right now, it seems that uh, we have enough PPE to move forward, uh, you know, in hospitals and clinics and long-term care homes. And that was something that Canadians really rallied together to fill a void that certainly existed in parts of Canada. And I think now it's about uh, a long-term. I know that Jeff and I were talking the other day and, uh, you know, we think that we're in this for a long haul um, and the pandemic isn't going to go away in a few months. And so I think people have to um, be prepared for, you know, living a new normal, adapting to the changes that we all have to make and doing it in a way that it's really sustainable um, because this is hard. It takes a lot of energy every day, um, you know, being in the hospital and donning and doffing the PPE, but then just people going to work every day and having, you know, I'm at grocery stores and the sanitizing that's going on and all of those extra things are, like not how we have normally lived life. So if we can help make the solution simpler, I think that's something that uh, people are looking for.
3: Is there I one thing... Thi- pe- Sorry, people go ahead. are a- adapting in their mindset to the, the new reality we're in. And I know that different people have different measures that they take and different feelings about how engaged they are with it. But think really, people do have to get accustomed to new normals and, and make it as simple as possible. So we're, we're trying to help with that.
1: You know what? I appreciate you both so much coming on. There's a lot to be uh, learned from PandemicSolutions.com simply as a resource for those who are feeling that anxiety and wanting to sort of find a path as to how to, as Haley said, uh, get comfortable with being uncomfortable Um, but also keeping that anxiety level lower, knowing you're doing everything you possibly can. And we really do appreciate both of you taking your time on this Monday. Thanks for this. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Joey cheers. That is Haley Wickenheiser, four-time Olympic gold medalist, uh, training to be a doctor and really putting herself on the front lines of trying to keep Canadians safe here and teaming up with a a group of physicians and entrepreneurs to do PandemicSolutions.com. You heard Dr. Jeff Shaw there, cardiologist and internal medicine physician with a subspecialty in intensive care medicine. So certainly a frontliner there. More information, PandemicSolutions.com. We're going to turn our attention now to Strathcona. Park, the encampment, 400 plus tents. So many questions, so few answers, no actions, no help, it seems, for anyone. All sides asking for help here. Last week, Vancouver City Councilor and Strathcona resident uh, Pete Fry was on the Linda Steele show, and he was quite emotional about how the tent city environment is impacting that community. Have a listen.
4: From the moment the camp sort of arrived... You know, I knew that the, the, the end game, that the, where these things end is not going to be good. Uh, it's only a matter of time before the, the organized crime kind of inserts itself in the situation. and We've had a number of scary incidents for folks uh, involving interfering with children. Uh, what do you mean although, by that? Oh, gosh. Well, we had um, one boy was a, a man threatened to gouge a kid's eyes out for looking at him. What? Another, chi- yeah, another child was um, in the water park, and a gentleman was in some state of psychosis, walked over, picked the child up, lifted him over his head, shook him, put him down, and then proceeded to get in a fight with a jet of water. And then another man uh, threatened a newborn, um, uh, threatened to rape and kill it with a stick.
5: Oh, my God.
4: Yeah, so th- these are interactions that obviously are pretty distressing for folks who are... Maybe, you know, I think Strathconans generally are pretty well-versed in, in, in proximate living to the downtown east side and, and, you know, kind of a coexistence live and let live thing. And and it takes a lot to rough us, but I think that generally some of the stuff that's been happening lately has been a little bit more on the extreme side, and I, and I think folks are worried how this may go.
1: Lots of folks are worried about a lot when it comes to Strathcona Park, and certainly people living at risk people living clearly with mental health issues that are unsupported people going hungry not being able to take the medication that they need because they can't get food where are folks to go these are all questions on the other side of this discussion uh it's being asked by a big number of people who have been really literally moving mountains on the poverty file in this affordability and opioid crisis one of those heavy listers is Mark Brand, the CEO of A Better Life Foundation. He joins me on the line. Hey, Mark. Hey, Jody. How are you? I'm good, thank you. It's good to talk to you. Every time I, I hear about uh, a conversation about whether it's Oppenheimer or Strathcona Park and, and, the, and the, 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 the conversations, the politics back and forth, the struggle with what to do, the communities that are really feeling the weight all communities that are feeling the weight, I often think of you and how you have literally been doing everything you can to help the root of this problem. And I thought it would be a good idea to have you on to talk it through. When you hear that clip from Pete Fry, what do you what do you hear? What do you think?
6: Uh, I, I'm just really recognizing right now how, um, how much Counselor Fry and the rest of Strathcona has not had to be in the coal face of this problem. Proximity is is everything. But now, after Oppenheimer relocated down to the docks, you know we got we got another look at it, and we got to say, wow, this is this is huge. This isn't just a downtown east side thing. Mm-hmm. And then when it removed itself there, for well, then we were physically removed with no notice, and they relocated to Strathcona. The incidents that we're hearing about, of course, are a tip of an iceberg, and. It makes me really, um, first of all, I feel for the people who were involved in those incidents, alleged incidents. um, And I also feel for the other 400 people who are in that encampment who are nonviolent, who have literally no other options, um, who, given the choice, would not be residing outdoors in a tent, but have created a community there. Because this problem has been with us for decades. It's not new. And particularly around mental health. In, around those mental health outbursts that we see, um, it's incredibly important for us to look to the root of the problem and say, "What are the issues that are causing this? Like, what are what are the systemic issues that have created these crazy injustices that are now on people's doorsteps, and they are on the doorsteps of affluent people who can help make these changes?" So, what you know, I always hope for Jody, and you know this from all of our conversations is I look to my peers and my partners and the incredible people who do this work in the downtown east side for generations at this point and try and figure out how we come to the table to discuss what are the ways we move forward and right the injustices so that everybody feels safe. How can we get everybody to feel safe?
1: It's that's the big, big question because it's not a whose side are you on here? And it feels sometimes that it is an us versus them, whoever your us might be. And when you and I were going back and forth about you joining me today, you know, I'm throwing down like I'm there's the activist piece and there's the politician piece and neither Mm -hmm. side actually really brings to the table doable first domino to fall change that we can get to to try and, 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 as you said, address some of these issues that have been going on for a generation or more and have led us to where we are, which is catastrophic.
6: Well, you're hearing anger and pain and guilt and yeah. all of those things manifested into these direct outbursts, right? You, you have two sides who are saying, of course, on the activist side, of course, on the activist side, like understanding the problem is like we wouldn't be here if we looked after people. It costs us three times minimum as much to keep someone unhoused as it does to house them and provide them with services, yet we're still here. We have that data. We've had it for 10 years. So, of three course, times. activists are intense.
1: At three least times. minimum.
6: We've That's seen crazy. studies. So, I've worked in 10 cities, obviously, all over North America, um, in the Mission and Tenderloin, mm-hmm. at Skid Row in LA, across in New York. Uh, they exist in every city. Mm-hmm. And w- how they're dealt with, and is there's there's data out there to support everything that we talk about around just getting people housed. And I think the province is trying to move as literally, you know, give, give some kudos to BC Housing and the province um, to really trying to move in a direction of getting people into emergency housing and shelter, and COVID's given us that. But on the other side, of course I understand a resident who's got young children living in that neighborhood being in fear. We don't want to say that's not relevant. Of course it's relevant. It's, it's mm-hmm. all relevant. And when we're only looking at these two tips of the spear, if you will, we're not going to solve anything if we're just yelling at each other. We have to go take a step back and say, how do we get here? More importantly, we have the power to fix it. Our vote matters. Doing proper research into people before we pop them into office really matters. Like, we have to understand who, under, who has these issues. Sarah Blythe was up for counsel. If she was sitting in council right now, what would be different? would anything be different but you know Sarah's incredible so I think when we're looking at the problems of the day and our problem of right now of course and has been for decades is how do we create an equitable future for all Vancouverites where they can afford to house themselves get the right health especially mental health mental health is vilified it's no different than having cancer if you have bipolar you don't have any control of that if you're not medicated or looked after properly That gentleman in the park doesn't want to be doing those things. There's no malice there. That's an illness. And it's one that we have let just fester. And so if we're not actually looking at the solutions, what do we say? Get them out of here. And then where do they go? And why are we saying them? How how can we in good conscience say them? That's somebody's daughter. That's somebody's brother. That's somebody's uncle. Right? And we think about people who are in the street. Almost all of them have been physically, mentally, and sexually abused. They're carrying that trauma. And we're just like, oh, the crazy guy with the knife. Like, what happened to that human being that we failed him in our system for them to get to that place? So I think it's important for us to look inside and say, how are we going to go forward in a meaningful way? And it's a long game. We're not talking about tomorrow.
1: And we're not intermedia-
6: talking. Sorry, go yeah. ahead, Jody.
1: No, I just... I. Exactly that. We're not talking about tomorrow. But what can we do today for a better tomorrow, for a better next week, for a better next month, for a better next year? This conversation uh, is a tough one. And the tough conversation requires uh, educated and and invested guests. And Mark Brand, the CEO of A Better Life Foundation, is certainly that. And prior to the break, we were talking about how your vote matters and and the leaders matter. And on the Linda Steele Show last week, uh, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart was pressed, actually, about Strathcona Park, and and specifically by Linda, pressed for his plan of action. Have a listen. Is that park going to be dealt with by September?
7: I can't see how that park is going to be, uh you know, no, I, I don't think so, because we don't have the housing units to put these folks in, and oh, that's ben. where where this has to start. And yeah. I'm, I'm really sorry for the local community, but... This is why the, what you're doing today is so important, because it's sending a message that we need the modular housing. We do have 100 units opening in February. There has been some federal investment here. And as I said before, it, it did start pretty strong uh, in my mandate, uh, but then it, it has really fallen off. And what really I've been working on is, is trying to get a commitment to 300 units of modular housing. Um, I've heard lots of 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 uh, nice words uh and in fact quite a uh a rousing speech from the new uh, housing minister when I was in Ottawa last uh time with the big city mayors but uh, the check has not come through and and really the the aggravating thing is I know the money sitting there there is just a problem with the um, with the bureaucracy essentially at the federal level, and I really need uh, senior-level cabinet ministers to, to shake this loose. But uh, really, it's the federal government that, you know, 16 months is a long time when you know exactly what you need. We bought the land, it's sitting here. Uh, the province said they'll partner on this housing, so really the, the ask is just, we need the money for the 300 modular units.
1: 300 modu- modular units, 400 tents in Strathcona Park, more people by the day requiring some sorts of supports to, to pull out of poverty, Mark. And I know in five minutes we can't solve all the things, but can you give us sort of a roadmap of if you had the, the, the talking stick, if you had the magic moment to say, here's, the, here's what I would do, what would you do? Uh,
6: I would immediately consult with people who know a lot more than me. That would be my first step. And that is our constant step, right? When you ask people who are in the work and have been in the work so long, and I gave you a long list of heroes um, that I'm excited to, to have you talk to, um, that would be the first thing. You convene and you ask, right? If you don't know, yeah. if that's not your area of expertise, you have to do that. Number two, you look to public-private government relationships. Um, I think that there's been too much. Just we point this way, they point back, we point over there, we both point in this direction and not much gets done. Like if we say that that's a four or five year goal, that's great. What do we do right now? And so I always try to get people specifically in government to look at things as if it was a natural disaster. If tomorrow an earthquake happened and there was 400 residents without homes, what would you do? You would set up emergency tenting. You would bring in all the medical service needed. You would bring in critical food need. These things would just happen. We know because they happen everywhere else in the world. This is that state of emergency and it's not being given that voice it's just as a oh it is and i don't know how that energy got there but this is an actual crisis people are losing their lives right we are doing small incremental things around legalization of opioids which are creating a lot of these mental outbreaks bad drugs on the street equals bad behavior it just is and if people can access the things that they need we have a decrease there but we need to be looking as private citizens which is we try and do our best to help and through connectivity to great partners and thank you for connecting us with an amazing woman who uh, helped us get almost 200 liters of hand sanitizer out. We've gotten over 35,000 masks out, a bunch of those to the tent city um, to try and help people also be safe because COVID affects everybody. All these things affect everybody. So I think if we just look to what can you do, what can I do, what can my business do, and we all take a little piece, we can start to work on what those solutions might be. Imagine what it would look like if the community is actually rallied in full support to say, if we help people out, then it's not an us versus them. It just isn't us. And I think that we need really, really strong leadership. That leadership exists in our Indigenous communities and leadership in the downtown east side. It exists in the organizations we work with, PHS, Tira, Central City Foundation. I mean, these people know this stuff like the back of their hand. They have answers. And so right. I think- Why if aren't we they at the table?
1: Them, why, yeah, why aren't right? they already well, at the table? Well, it's their table. table. But- Yes.
6: Right. I think it's the invitation needs to be for council to come join their table.
1: Right. There it is.
6: Yeah. Those are my my quick thoughts, Jody. I I think that in the interim, I just ask everybody to try and really seek out truth. We know, and I I say this gently that the media does inflame situations um, because that's how we get clicks and that's how it all happens. So to look for the heroes, to look for the good stories, to look for the people who are kind um, and then model behavior after them, not after inflammatory statements, not after organized crime threats. You know, those things, that's, that's unfortunate because that's what we'll grab onto and focus on to try and get our way. But the fact of the matter is, if the community is unwell, we're all unwell. And right now, our community is very unwell.
1: And one of the people, Mark that are basically saying i don't want a place to live i'm i'm just staying here there's a there's a very small group who have vocally said i'm going to live right here and you can't make me not
6: this is this is one of those tropes around homelessness that just perpetuates right which is again well first of all if that person is indigenous they should be able to live exactly where they want to it's their land first um, secondly, it's it is a very, very small amount of people that, that do throw that flagpole down and it's usually because they're very upset and hurt that they haven't been looked after. Right. Like why why would you put us into this position? Why would you put our back against the wall? We can't access okay. services. We don't have enough money to live or to eat. There is no medical help for us, there's no mental help for us, our people and when we talk about the people of Coast Salish descent, like it's literally we receive no support that they deserve we, are, we yeah. are absolutely honored to be on their land their land so i think we just and, need to be mindful of the truth
1: and neglected to the point where they have to take a stand like that in order to right? just be yeah it is quite something mark thank you as always for your honesty your your forthright call to action uh, it is very much appreciated honor and
6: a pleasure thank you for having me on jody
1: I want to connect with my good friend Mo Amir. He's the host of This Is Van Color podcast and he's a contributor for Vancouver Is Awesome. And last week, Mo, you and I got to connect on the drinking in parks, drinking at beaches and parks legally, responsibly. How would this work? We talked it all through. Uh, Can you give the Mike Smith uh, Show audience a little bit of a recap of what we talked about and and sort of what, what has happened since?
5: absolutely my pleasure thanks for having me back on as you said on friday you were filling in for jill bennett and we chatted about how uh, vancouver park board at the moment is unable to permit responsible alcohol consumption in vancouver parks and beaches and to review vancouver park board does have authority over the city's parks and beaches but under the bc liquor control and licensing act Only municipalities and regional districts can designate public zones for alcohol consumption. And, of course, Park Board is neither a municipality nor a regional district. So as a result, provincial law puts Park Board's ability to designate these drinking zones in Vancouver parks in a legal legislative limbo. And while the B.C. government has indicated that they will make this legislative change, It just won't be in time for this summer. It does take a lengthy process to amend legislation, such as the amendment that is required in the B.C. Liquor Control Act, in order to give Park Board this authority uh, that municipalities and regional districts enjoy. So this is why Vancouver City Council can approve four non-park outdoor plazas for public drinking immediately, and why North Vancouver and Port Coquitlam can approve drinking in their parks immediately as well, while Park Board is just unable to do the same in Vancouver parks and beaches. Now, our conversation actually perked the ears of BC Attorney General David Eby. He reached out to me and he said, yeah, all of that is correct, but... He actually offered Vancouver Park Board a short-term solution so that we would be able to drink in designated Vancouver Parks and Beaches this summer. And Mr. Eby sent me a July 30th letter that he wrote to Park Board, and it's included in that Vancouver is Awesome article that, I, uh, that went up yesterday. And in this letter... He describes, uh, Mr. Eby describes the short-term solution. Basically, Vancouver Park Board would temporarily give their regulatory authority to the B.C. government, which would then implement the instructions of Park Board with respect to the designated drinking zones in the city's parks and beaches. So the idea was basically, okay, long-term the bc government would make the legislative change to the bc liquor control act in order to empower vancouver park board in the future but since that would take at least a year according to david eby the province will on a temporary basis assume regulatory authority of vancouver's parks so that drinking could be legalized in designated parks and beaches right away this summer this year And the province offered the solution due to the urgency caused by the pandemic and physical distancing protocols where it's better to get people outside with lots of space instead of inside enclosed spaces. And unfortunately, Park Board unanimously rejected this recommendation for an immediate solution. So I went back to Vancouver Park Board Commissioner Dave Demers and I said, hey, you know, here was your solution. You guys are on board for public drinking. Why didn't you take David Eby's offer? And Dave Demers said that handing over Park Board authority to the B.C. government, even temporarily, was too slippery of a slope. And whether you agree with Dave Demers and the rest of Park Board, it's very clear that B.C. Attorney General David Eby uh, did give Vancouver Park Board an option That would have allowed for drinking in public parks and beaches this year and if there's any year that you want to give people a break it's definitely this year and Vancouver Park Board rejected that offer now David Eby himself was quite surprised by this outcome and his letter really emphasizes how by only pursuing the long-term legislative fix it will be at least a year before Vancouver Park Board has the authority to allow for public drinking in parks and beaches so Long of the short, this is a complicated legislative issue, but Vancouver Park Board had the opportunity to make this happen this year, and they chose not to do so.
1: And it's interesting, Mo, we're with Mo Amir, host of This is Van Keller podcast, as well as a contributor for Vancouver is Awesome. You can see uh, Mo's latest op-ed at Vancouverisawesome.com. I highly recommend that you read it. We're kind of giving a synopsis here. Interesting, when I tweeted that you were coming on the show to update on this file, I got a DM from one of the park board commissioners in Trisha Barker. And Trisha said, I think many people may have missed it, but I did get a few messages of thanks for this before the vote on alcohol and alcohol parks, I asked that the park rangers and Vancouver Police Department be calm and kind with people who are drinking responsibly in parks right now. I acknowledge that drinking was happening already. And she went on to say, I know this is a hot topic for you and just wanted to let you know that I did ask for some leeway. So if Uh, Park Board Chair Dave Demers wants to say that's too slippery of a slope, even in a pandemic. I mean, other things are being changed and augmented and pylons being put up and bike lanes being created. Why not create that accessibility for all the people who don't have a yard, a patio, a place to have few faces, big spaces, not many people with big spaces in the lower mainland to socialize and gather people feeling very isolated here. So I think this is a a further conversation to be had. And as always, Mo, I'm very uh, thankful for your due diligence on this and for reaching out when, when David Eby did respond to our conversation from Friday, it's important to keep moving this forward. And maybe that next step is to, to, to say, okay, the park board's going to be of no help. So now we need to try and figure out a way to get it, to get the people who truly are not breaking any laws, not causing any disruption to be left alone, to have a beer at the beach.
5: Yeah, I agree. I think the problem with that though is that you know, once you give this ambiguous instruction to be kind and and careful with people, you know, what does that mean? There's a lot of room for interpretation. I think the best solution would have been Designating zones for public drinking and and just having that clear because then it becomes on the individual park ranger or individual police officer to decide whether they want to give someone a hard time
1: or not right? oh true that no the best thing to happen would have been the park board to do the right thing. listen to the attorney general, listen to the city of Vancouver, follow what the north van Poco Delta what you know other jurisdictions yeah. have done without without negative impacts of any kind we're in a pandemic. this is a very frustrating. Uh, cycle of round and round and, and hours of, of human attention that could be put to better use of, I don't know, it, and it's, so, <laughs> it's so
5: frustrating when Park Board has come out and say, you know, they support this, they have the zones ready and everything, and they were given yeah. this option to, to make it happen this year, and they chose not to do so. And that was something that they yeah. kind of uh, glossed over. <laughs> when, a little when bit they of a gloss there, yeah. Yeah.
1: And as you mentioned, unanimously so. So this mm-hmm. is not this is not um, just a, gr- a group, a handful of park board commissioners. Mm-hmm. They decided overall to not move forward with this and that. It it leaves us with a bad taste in our mouths, where, where we'd rather have a re- responsible glass of prosecco at the beach, exactly. which you and I will do. Keep me posted, okay, on this, Mo. Keep I got me posted my swell bottle do, ready. Please. I'm ready. Okay, we're gonna do that. <laughs> we'll, we'll be all over social media. We're gonna go viral in our our swell bottles at the beach, Mo Amir and I. Host I of it. this is Van Keller Your latest uh, podcast features.
5: Uh, well, last week it was with Vancouver City Councilor Rebecca Bly, a really great episode. Yes. Even if you're not following Vancouver City Council, she goes through a lot of issues. This week, uh, probably tomorrow, Kyla Lee is back on the podcast and we're going to talk about Excellent. workplace bullying and some of the legal implications.
1: Oh, looking forward to that. Yeah. This is Van Color Podcast. Mo Amir, always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jody. All right, we'll talk again soon and top up that swell bottle. You know I love talking sports. Let's do it because when the NHL hit pause, the Vancouver Canucks had sort of a rather tenuous hold on a playoff spot. But here we are, rather red hot. Yes, we. I'm going to do the Homer thing. uh, And I want to do what we've not done in far too long. Let's tee up a round one Stanley Cup playoff matchup for the Vancouver Canucks. Joining me is Rob Williams, the sports editor at the Daily Hive. Hey, Rob.
8: Hey, Jody, how are you?
1: I'm good. You know what? Uh, Great, actually. And I I hate to do this because I worked for uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, organization, MLSE, for a number of years covering the Toronto Maple Leafs. I know there are lots of Leaf fans out there, uh, but there is something sweet about the Canucks making the postseason and the Leafs not. (laughs) That's where I'm at as my fandom in a pandemic.
8: (laughs) No, you're not alone. I I think... um, I think in many ways it's better if the Leafs are in it because, you know, we need that villain. We need that, that uh, you know, that that team to be, you know, that kind of a team with that history and that kind of a following. For them to be involved in the playoffs is, is probably a good thing, but it's so, so sweet to be um, in Vancouver, you know, the Leafs with, you know, how oversaturated they are and they're just yeah. force fed to us in the national media all the time. For them to be gone and in... in uh, such soul-crushing fashion for them. Yeah, uh, yeah it it, it's, uh, it brings a smile to Canucks fans' faces for sure.
1: I never root against a team per se unless they're taking on my team. Um, but it, it, you're right about the sandpaper piece. It would be even sweeter if uh, the Leafs were the foe, and certainly want to see you know as many Canadian teams competing as as possible. But here we are. Um, I love in the, uh, the flurry that was those qualifying games. It was just like, uh, it was like a full buffet, all you can eat buffet of hockey 24 seven. It felt like for the last few days and, and, and now we get this pause where we're like, okay, what happens next? Can you give us a, uh, the pre game, uh, talk through for the person who perhaps hasn't really followed hockey. This is the prime moment to invest, right?
8: absolutely yeah no i i think uh i think a lot of people i, I sort of sense there just from you know some of the people i know they're kind of casual fans that maybe weren't fully invested or you know it's it's, you know it's, it's august i understand it's, it's a confusing it was a confusing format but now i mean that we are now essentially um through that play-in round that was there to decide what the, who were going to be the playoff teams for this year so now it's it's uh, like a regular playoff Stanley Cup playoffs. There's there's 16 teams in it. The Canucks are playing the defending Cup champions, uh, St. Louis Blues. So they've drawn a really tough matchup. Um, mm. But I think the Canucks have a chance in this. They they are um, you know they're kind of coming into this series with nothing to lose. I think the Blues are are they haven't been playing well. They lost three games in a row. And um, yeah, I, I think there's there's a there's potential for the Blues to be a little bit complacent, you know, not quite as motivated given they won last year and they're now playing without fans and the Canucks should be coming in loose and uh, everything to gain and, and nothing to lose at this point.
1: And isn't it interesting, Rob, when we look historically, I've had the pleasure of covering the Vancouver Canucks Stanley Cup runs in both 1994 and 2011 and going into both of those paths all the way to the stanley cup final and and Game seven of the stanley cup final no less both times the canucks squeaked into the postseason and then were the ongoing surprise uh, and and it's just there's nothing like it when you get behind the dog the underdog and and they win i mean it's it's special
8: yeah absolutely and uh, i i mean the- I, I haven't been in the media as long as you, but uh, this is the first time I'm getting to cover a, a series so win good. by the Vancouver Canucks. It's been way, way too long. It's been, it's been nine years, not since Kevin Bieksa sent them to the Stanley Cup final. and I think everyone thought they were going to win the Stanley Cup. They haven't won a series since then, so it was big for them to, 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 um, you know, to get over the hump and get into the playoffs and get a, a series win. It's not quite a playoff series win, but it was a postseason series win. Uh, I think it means a lot to um, uh, to fans of this team and, and to see just how, um, you know, we saw the videos the Canucks were putting out of, of the players celebrating in the dressing room. I mean, we haven't seen scenes like that uh, since 2011. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's every reason to get excited about this team. This is a really good young team. And, um, you know, this is hopefully just the beginning for these guys. And I think that's something that's, that's really exciting and something that even when, when the Canucks made the playoffs uh, five years ago, they still had the Siddines there and it was in Burroughs and, and they were kind of an older team and they had players that you liked, but you knew that they weren't going to be, they weren't going to be getting any better. And I think that that's something that's so different about this team that they have Elias Pettersson who has a chance to become the greatest player in franchise history, if not for, Quinn Hughes, the, you know the rookie defenseman. Right? He could be the best player in franchise history. He certainly is on track to be the best defenseman in franchise history by a lot. So, this is a a, a good young team, and uh, and a team that that I think a lot of fans in Vancouver are going to get very very excited about.
1: And you can get to know these young guns and the old guys. I loved how when uh, Taniv scored the game winner, uh, you know everybody's like, "Oh, Dad did it." <laughs> <laughs> Call him dad because he's, quote-unquote, so old at 30. Um, and just the looseness of this team, like having Marstrom say, you know, I just want to thank the guys for scoring one more than I let in. That's looseness.
8: Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a team gelling, a team coming yeah. together. Um, I, I, I It kind of reminds me in a weird way of kind of the, the Marcus Naslin, Todd Bertuzzi uh, era team where, where they had a lot of young guys that kind of just – Kind of grew into their own uh, right around the same time, and and, and uh, which was a little it was a little bit different in, in um, 2011 how that team kind of came together over the years, but um, yeah, there, there's just this uh, you you look at these guys and they they, they I, I mean they look like they're friends right like, like they look like they're buddies they off the ice uh, you know uh, the, the way that uh, Peterson and Hughes and Besser and Horvat and, and Markstrom and these guys. The way they all interact with each other, um, you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's been a while. <laughs> We've been through some dark periods of hockey. It's hard to gel as a team when you're losing most nights. Um, so winning has a, a, has a way of doing that for them. But, you know, but on top of all that, you know, their best players are, are mostly of a similar age. They're young. They're full of enthusiasm. Um, so it, it's great to see.
1: And they they got to be sure not to make those uh, rookie mistakes being the young guys, uh, no sloppy opportunities here, as you said, like the St. Louis blues are not to be um, taken lightly of uh, obviously Vladimir Tarasenko healthy is dangerous.
8: Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the blues are a, they're a tough team. I mean, ironically, the Canucks have actually played them really, really well uh, <laughs> this year. The, the blues were the best, had the best record in the Western conference, the Canucks only lost to them once. They they won two out of the three meetings and the only loss was a was an overtime loss. Uh the Blues are a are a deep team. They are uh you know obviously battle tested.
7: Mm-hmm. They're very good
8: defensively and they have enough game breakers to uh to put the puck in the net. And they've also got a great goaltender in Jordan Biddington, who was outstanding uh particularly last season in the playoffs. So yeah, they, they're going to have their hands full, undoubtedly. Um, but, you know, it's just a matter of if can, can the Canucks' top stars, can they really break through and, and fill the net? And can they get great goaltending from Jacob Markstrom? If they do that, they, you know, they've, they've got a fighting chance in this series. So, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's going to be fun to see just because, um, you know, it, up until late in the game uh, yesterday, it was undecided whether they're going to be playing St. Louis or Dallas. I think Dallas was... Would have been probably an easier matchup, but I think that there's just something, you know, it's going to put a lot, lot more stakes in this now because it is St. Louis, because it's, a, it's the champs, right? It's not just a yeah. Dallas. Just would have been another team. St. Louis is a is a real is a team that you can really measure yourself against. So, um, just to put up a fight against the Blues would be would be fun to see. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to see it happen, and it all begins on Wednesday.
1: Looking forward to Wednesday indeed. And we'll all keep our fingers crossed that the St. Louis Blues are looking past the Vancouver Canucks as oh, once we get by those guys, because anything's possible. Anything is possible at this point, headed into a, an opening round of the playoffs. As you said, like, this is your first real rodeo. And, uh, some of the greatest moments of my broadcast career have been just being present for some of the excitement around the team that gets on the train toward the Stanley Cup finals. So let's do it together. I'm sure we'll talk again, Rob, maybe even uh, on Thursday. We can do the post game. cheers man that's rob williams the sports editor daily hive you should always read the daily hive uh, for rob's pieces keep you up to speed especially now and get it get it together with your family and your friends uh you know get the zoom call going get the FaceTime happening watch the games together do it responsibly have your own nhl bubbles right because we're partying responsibly well it's been quite the last five months hasn't it Five months into this COVID-19 pandemic, and we've all been on a bit of a roller coaster of emotion and anxiety, worry, and all of us are weathering this storm differently. Many of us are seeing sort of an increase, perhaps, in the intake of comfort foods or that extra glass of wine here and there or everywhere it adds up and it becomes a bit of a habit. So we're glad to help press the reset button here with our next guest, Alyssa Bowman, who's laying out the map to drinking responsibly and and finding that moderation in your food and as well as in your life. Uh, Alyssa is uh, the principal at nourished.ca. Good to have you here. Hi, Joey. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. It's always a good day to sort of figure out where your next food choice is coming from. That's one of the mantras that that has come to me via nourished.ca.
0: Yes. Start with your very next food decision. We make so many in our, without even thinking of them. So I always like to say, well, put, make your food choices a little bit more intentional. Um, Choose your, choose your foods and your drink with a little bit more mindfulness and really um, practice health as a daily intention.
1: I like that it's moderation-based as well, because somebody might be listening going, I want my glass of wine. And mm-hmm. you're not there to take the glass of wine away from somebody. You're just saying never, don't have five.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm never going to take away, you know, deprivation doesn't work. Diets um, are not sustainable. They are not long term lifestyle, you know, weight solutions. So I'm never going to take away whatever that may be that glass of wine, for me, it's a slice of pizza, um, your Nanaimo bar, your Cheesies, your Strongbow. Oh,
1: Hawkins. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm never going to take that away, but it's about um, noticing our habits and what we do habitually um, become who we are. So do we do something just out of habit just because it's five o'clock every single day? Does that mean you pour yourself a glass of wine? And then where does that one glass of wine or cocktail lead to? Is it a second one right when the glass is empty? Where does that one lead to? Is it a third one? So it's about noticing um, the habits that we keep. And it's really the foundation of my practice at Nourished is really asking you and asking my clients to uh, recalibrate, right? And to Mm -hmm. uh, focus on your habits and uh, really ask yourself, does this serve me? And especially now it's summer. I mean, the socializing for so many of us, just, it doesn't end. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's a Sunday or a Monday or a Tuesday. It's like, you're always out on a patio when you're out on a patio. What are you doing? Usually drinking. So it's, 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 it's important to, you know, check in with yourself and check in on like,
1: where, where are you at here? I like that check in. And I I would suggest, I mean, you're the expert here as a holistic nutritionist, but for me, it's how I feel when I wake up in the morning, because it's Mm -hmm. really easy to engage into that sort of that slide into that comfy seat. And, and you know what? Yeah, sure. I'll just have another. And if I wake up the next morning feeling like, oh, well, that's not great. Well, what did I do? What did I eat? What did I drink? How how can I make sure that I don't feel like this tomorrow? And not that I feel remarkably bad. It's just how much water did I have yesterday? Did I really eat enough leafy greens? These are questions that get lost in the conversation when we're all feeling overwhelmed by, well, just about everything in 2020.
0: <laughs> yeah, that is a really good habit to get into and ask yourself um you know I always like to say like I'm trying to build my day today so I have a better tomorrow right so mm-hmm. I know for me like thinking about my tomorrow today Keeps me in check, keeps me present and will most likely, depending on what happens tomorrow or what's in my day tomorrow, will most likely make me have a glass of water after every alcoholic beverage instead of, you know, refilling right away or make sure, you know, I'm eating earlier in the day so I have time at night to actually go to sleep and I'm not digesting when I'm eating these kind of habits to keep you, you know, in check to make sure you're feeling really good tomorrow. And granted, if you live your life like this, the 80-20 rule, that's great, because there are going to be those times where you indulge in that, whatever that is, or you have that extra glass of wine, and maybe tomorrow you have the freedom to kind of sleep in and, and and, and you know, take your time. But most of the time, life is not like that. Most of the time, we want to be, you know, being healthy, living living for today, but also
1: for feeling your best tomorrow. I want you to unpack those two things that you just laid down because they are very important. Number one is while you're having that cocktail, whatever it looks like, the in between times. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times you, legitimately you, have handed me a glass of water. Just drink this. <laughs> just drink this. And people forget to drink water. We forget Especially to drink when it's so hot out.
0: So important, especially in the summertime, but also so important between yeah. every alcoholic beverage, whatever that is, whether it's a light beer or a full beer, a daiquiri, whatever your thing is, instead of, you know, just reaching for another one, which is all too easy, right? Because the waiters are yeah. coming around. Can I get you another glass? They're trying to sell you more. And even, you know, even when we're at home, it's just so easy to go to the fridge and, and grab that extra, that extra can. Have water with you. Bring water to the table, w- whether it's water or soda water. Um, just have that drink in between each, each alcoholic beverage. That will make you feel better when you're drinking, and it will also make you feel so much better for thinking of that tomorrow, right? Because mm-hmm. alcohol it dehydrates, and when, when you're dehydrated um, is when you, when you wake up and you're not feeling so great. So we want to keep hydrating, and especially in the summer, and especially on a patio, and especially when a lot of summertime drinks are those like fruity, really fruity, really sugary, really, you know, sweet drinks, right? Because that sweet stuff just dehydrates you even more. So when you are on the patio, opt for a glass of wine, even make it a wine spritzer, add your own soda. Like I always like to get soda water uh, because it's not just plain water. And then I could just keep adding it to my wine to like spritz it up, lighten it up and lighten it up. Then I'll go for my water and then I'll go and have another glass of wine if that is the direction the night is going.
1: One more thing that I want to slide in here because I said there were the two things that you touched on. The other one doesn't necessarily have to do with moderation nor checking your party, Uh, but how and when you eat, like er er eating your bigger meal earlier in the day or being able Mm -hmm. to digest earlier, that really is a big one, isn't it?
0: -hmm. It really is because when you're sleeping, you want to be sleeping, rejuvenating, resting and replenishing. You don't want to be digesting. So I always like to have my breakfast and lunch as my bigger meals and then dinner um, I really like to keep light and it's uh, some kind of clean protein and a leafy veg. And I like to eat, I like to eat, you know, during, di- during summer, like before six, seven, seven at the latest so I can digest and like go to sleep where I can actually get some sleep. Because you don't want to be going to sleep when your body is digesting because you don't wake yeah. up, you don't wake up feeling rusted. No, it's true.
1: Mm-hmm. Nourish.ca is where you can find <laughs> a boatload of absolutely free and delicious uh, recipes, delicious. both super delicious and largely veg-based, some some significantly p- plant-based, certainly that you can add your proteins to if you're mm-hmm. not all the way plant-based, but it's certainly a resource for so many. So, Liz, thank you, as always, for giving us a little bit of a reset uh, here and checking so our moderation. Thank you so much for
0: having, uh, having me on and happy Monday to
1: Reset. That's it. I'm going to have my arugula salad now. Alyssa Bowman Mm. from nourished.ca.